Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're so happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water. We missed you. And thank you for coming back to take another deep dive into crime with us. As always, please be sure to check out our episode description. There you will find timestamps. You can also find the links to our TikTok and Instagram, as well as the link to help support us over here at Crime Dive. Please be sure to follow and download the podcast as well as recommend it to some friends of yours so they can become another diver. Today we are going to be talking about the tragic case of Amber Hagerman, the girl behind the Amber Alert. Now this case is still unsolved to this day which to me is very shocking considering the fact that this case occurred out in broad daylight next to a very busy street. Law enforcement really has done everything they can to find whoever did this to this little girl and really bring her and her family justice but unfortunately they have not not been able to do that. With that being said, let's get right into the case. Amber Renee Hagerman was born on November 25th, 1986 in Arlington, Texas. Her parents' names were Donna Williams and Richard Hagerman, and she had a younger brother named Ricky. Amber was described as being funny, smart, fun-loving, active, and she loved taking care of her little brother. Her mother, Donna, said that when Ricky was born, Amber just took him and said, he's my baby. And Donna was like, yes, ma'am, that is your baby. She loved her little brother. Now, Amber's mother, Donna, was pretty young when she had her. She was only 18, but she did the best that she could for her and her brother, Ricky. I mean, she absolutely adored her children and she would do anything for them. Amber's father, Richard, was in his 30s when she was born, which is a pretty big age gap for the two of them. And eventually they broke up. According to Donna, Richard was an abusive alcoholic and the cops were called to their home a lot because of domestic disputes. And the cops said that if they were called to their house one more time, the children would be taken away. And that was all Donna needed to hear. She said, I'm done. I'm not losing my kids. So she took Amber and Ricky and fled their home. Donna was homeless for a month or so, just trying to get back on her feet. She was doing what she could could to stay away from Richard because she was scared that he was going to be able to find them. She was so scared that her and the kids even lived out of her car for a few days out of fear of being tracked down. They eventually ended up in a women's shelter for refuge so she could just have some time to really get herself together. In 1995, Amber's mother was approached by a news crew at the women's shelter and they asked her if she wanted to be a part of a documentary about women and how they could possibly get off welfare. Now at the time, Donna was on welfare in order to support herself and her family. And the women's shelter even helped her get an apartment so that way she could have a safe haven for her children. Donna was a little bit iffy about agreeing to be in this film because she was still hiding from Richard and she was terrified that he would find them or find any clues in any sort of footage and find out where they were staying. So she was a little bit weary at first, but eventually she did agree to be in the documentary. But Donna said it took her, Amber and Ricky, almost a year to live life normally again, because they were just terrified that he would find them. In August of 1995, five months before Amber was kidnapped, the filming for the documentary began. And there's hours of footage of Amber, her brother, Ricky, Donna. This really gave people an idea of who Amber was. 
having footage of a young victim alive right before a tragedy took place is not very common. Usually there's just a picture of them on the news or of them with their family, but there's not normally footage that depicts them living out all the personality traits that their family members say that they have. This really resonates with the public and this really gives people more of an idea of who Amber was. I'm really glad that we have this footage of Amber to look back on and remember her by and I'm sure her family is so grateful that they did have this footage. Imagine if Donna had said no to doing the documentary. She wouldn't have had all of these videos of her daughter just being herself and living out her life. I'm sure she's really grateful that she has that to look back on given what happened just months later. And I honestly commend Donna for being so open and vulnerable on camera. I mean, having to talk about your struggles and your financial struggles as a family living on welfare, that can't be easy at all. Being that vulnerable in your hometown, everybody knows who you are. But Donna was so positive. She wasn't worried about that. You could tell that she just wanted to be the best mother she could be. And you can tell she was an amazing mom. In the videos, Amber was just so goofy and you could tell that she loved life. She was just having fun being a kid, being herself, hanging out with her brother. And there's actually a video of Amber's birthday party, her ninth birthday. She opened some of her presents and you can just see how grateful she is for what she has. I'm sure she knows that her family probably struggles a little bit. That makes what she does get as a gift all the more special, knowing that it's not easy for her mother to have to spend money on those things for her. And you can just tell that she's so grateful for anything that she got, any present that she opened. It really reminds you to be grateful for what you have. In the mid 90s, there's not a lot of advanced technology. This is the era where kids were playing outside. They were riding their bikes. They were hanging out. There was no screen time. There were no iPads. There were no iPhones that kids were on or laptops. It was just you and outside. That was pretty much it. And this is how Amber and Ricky were. I mean, they were typical 90s kids. They spent a lot of time playing outside. They did what they could to just stay active. And that was just the norm for them. I would definitely say my childhood was more of half and half. The beginning half of my childhood was very much being outside, no screens or anything like that. And then the second half of my childhood, the preteen era was definitely more of like, oh, iPhones and iPads and laptops and things like that. Amber and Ricky, they loved playing outside together. They loved riding their bikes together. As I said, they were very close and Amber always looked after her little brother. On Saturday, January 13th, 1996, Donna took Amber and Ricky to the park. Saturday was their family day. That was their designated date to spend time with one another. And I love that concept of just having a day of the week designated to just spending quality time together. I think that's really important. At around 3 p.m., Donna decided to take Amber and Ricky to visit their grandparents after they left the park. And they also lived in Arlington, Texas. Everyone was spending time together at their grandparents' house, just having fun. And Amber and Ricky asked their mother if they could go ride their bikes around the neighborhood. Donna agreed, but she didn't want them going too far away from the house. Donna grew up on that street, I'm pretty sure, so she felt comfortable allowing Amber and Ricky to ride their bikes alone, just as long as they didn't leave the neighborhood. Donna recalls her last conversation with Amber, and she said to her, stay together and come right back, to which Amber replied, okay, mommy, we will. And that was the last time they ever spoke. Around 3.10 that day, Amber and Ricky set out on their bikes to ride around for a little bit, but they strayed away from the neighborhood. They ended up riding around in an abandoned Winn-Dixie grocery store parking lot. 
which was two blocks away from their grandparents' house. Now there were ramps over there for deliveries around the back of the building, but kids would ride their bikes on these ramps all the time. So this is where Amber and Ricky decided to go. They're kids, they're gonna push the boundaries a little bit. It's normal to kind of go outside of the bounds that your parents set for you just to see if you can get away with it for a little bit. But eventually Ricky started to get a little bit nervous. He didn't wanna get in trouble for going past where their mother said they were allowed. And he decided he wanted to go back to their grandparents' house. And he told Amber, come on, let's go. Let's not get in trouble. Amber said, okay, I'll be right behind you. But when Ricky got back to the house, he turned around and realized that Amber wasn't behind him. So he had rode his bike all the way back to his grandparents and Amber was not there. So Ricky pulls his bike up into the driveway and he notices his grandfather working in the garage. And his grandfather asks Ricky where Amber is. Ricky said, I guess she's still at the ramps where we just were. Immediately, Ricky and his grandfather get in his truck and they go back to the Winn-Dixie grocery store parking lot to look for Amber. But by the time they got there, all they saw was Amber's bike bike lying on the ground, but she wasn't there. Around 3.18 p.m., a 911 call was placed by a 78-year-old man named Jimmy Kevill. Now, he lived right behind the parking lot that Amber was riding her bike in, and he called 911 to report that a black truck suddenly pulled up next to a little girl, and a man jumped out, and he grabbed the little girl right off of her bike and shoved her into the truck. As the truck drove off, the little girl was screaming. The truck drove further into town away from a nearby highway called Highway 360. Now I wanna talk about that for a second. It's very jarring to think that this car drove into town instead of away from town. And it does make you think, did he already have a location for her to go? Was there already a place that he knew about? Safe to say that this person was probably a local if they drove into town instead of away. The witness, Jimmy Kevill, described the man who grabbed this little girl who we now know was Amber in his 20s or 30s. He had brown or black hair. He was white or Hispanic, under 6'11", and had a medium build. The truck was described as being solid black, a 1980s or 1990s truck, and in good condition with no visible damage. By the time Ricky and his grandfather pulled up to the scene and noticed Amber's bike, police were already there speaking to Jimmy Kevill. And unfortunately, Ricky, as well as his grandfather, had to tell Donna that Amber had been kidnapped. It's so crazy how fast it happened. I mean, they went to go ride their bikes around 3.10 and by 3.18, a 911 call was already placed. That doesn't include the time that it took Ricky to come back home. Like everything just happened so fast. It had to have happened in at least three to five minutes. Donna was absolutely distraught and she had no choice but to call Richard, Amber's father, and tell him that Amber had been kidnapped. She was desperately crying and pleading with him to help her find Amber and Richard immediately came over to help. He was so afraid for his little girl. Amber was last seen wearing pink jeans, a gray shirt with multicolored hands printed on it, and her hair in a ponytail. Now, police were pretty sure Amber didn't know the kidnapper, and this was based on the witness account that she didn't go willingly because he said that she was screaming as the truck drove away. So it was clear that she didn't know this person. A special task force was assembled 
to find Amber, and it consisted of eight FBI agents and eight local detectives. They processed the scene to see what they could find, but there was no evidence other than Amber's bike, so it didn't really give them many answers or much to go off of. Around 4.30 p.m., the police decided to contact local news outlets and summon them to Amber's grandparents' house so they could get the word out. It was very important to get the information out about Amber as fast as possible so she can be found quickly. Statistically, abducted children are killed within the first three hours of being taken, so they had to work very quickly within this short window of time. Donna and Richard came together and pleaded for Amber's return on the six o'clock news. Footage of Amber from the documentary was cut together and given to news outlets to get her face out there. And this really made people feel even more sympathetic towards the family, just to see Amber moving and interacting and seeing her personality, which like I said, is not normally the case. Usually there's just a picture of a child. So to have video footage really resonated with people so much more. The next day on January 15th, Arlington police began speaking to people who knew the family and they treated everybody as a suspect until they were ruled out. It didn't take long for Amber's mother and grandparents to be ruled out as suspects, but police began to look at Richard, Amber's father, a little bit closely. Now the family had been running and hiding from him because he was said to have been abusive to Donna. And I just want to make it known, Donna said he was only abusive to her, not to the children. Now Richard was questioned about his whereabouts the day of Amber's disappearance. And he said that he was at a warehouse at the time. After doing some digging, police obtained surveillance footage from the warehouse that Richard said he was at. He was there at the time Amber was taken. So he was ruled out as a suspect. Now Donna said at first she thought that he may be involved but the moment she saw him when he showed up to look for Amber, she knew he didn't do it because he was absolutely distraught. He was horrified that somebody had taken his little girl and he had been cooperative and helpful since the beginning. The next day, January 15th, three days after Amber went missing, the community of Arlington really began to rally around Amber's family. They had put up missing posters. They tied pink ribbons around trees all over town, as well as their cars to show support. And they started calling Amber Arlington's angel. And they did everything they could to raise awareness about the case to make sure Amber was brought home. Mike Thompson, the best friend of Richard Hagerman, who he actually lived with, was starting to get looked at very closely by Arlington police. This was because Mike Thompson, he almost appointed himself the spokesperson for the family. And he was really inserting himself in the middle of the search. And this definitely made police very curious about his intentions. Not to mention, he also drove a black truck, the vehicle of the suspect that took Amber. So they were definitely like, let's talk to this guy. And he was questioned about his whereabouts that day, but he said that he had been making a delivery of auto parts that day as a part of his job. And the deliveries that he made had timestamps on them whenever one was carried out. After reviewing this evidence, Mike was found to be 45 minutes away from where the abduction took place. So police just assumed that Mike is just being helpful because he knows the family and he cares about them and he wants Amber found. But I also wanna note that Amber was taken most likely by somebody that she didn't know because she screamed when she was taken. She knew Mike Thompson. She knew him as a family friend. So stands to reason if she had gotten in the car with him, she probably would have gone willingly. 
The following day on January 16th, a team of 15 FBI agents decided to really focus in on local sex offenders and they began interviewing them as well as the surrounding community to see if there's anybody who could have possibly known them. They believed that whoever did this to Amber had done it before and they wanted to leave no stone unturned. The following day on January 17th, 1996, five days after Amber's disappearance, and this was also actually the day the welfare documentary Donna, Amber, and Ricky were in was set to air, but they decided not to air the documentary out of respect because Amber was still missing. On this day, a woman called 911 saying that her next door neighbor knocked on her and her husband's door and told them that he thinks he found a little girl's body in a ditch while walking his dog. EMTs arrived immediately at the scene and they found that there was a little girl in a creek that had been overflowed from a rainstorm. And this creek was behind the apartment complex of the woman who called 911 as well as the man who found her body. Now this apartment complex was about four miles from the Winn-Dixie grocery store that Amber was abducted from. Amber's family was watching the news coverage all night long about a little girl's body being found behind an apartment complex. They were waiting to hear if it was Amber or not. The Arlington Police Department decided to send over a woman named Darylyn Perryman to the family home. She worked for Victims Assistance, which was responsible for helping the family and serving as a liaison between them and the police. Around 4 a.m., Darylyn was still at the family home when she was contacted by police that the person that was found in the creek was identified as nine-year-old Amber Hagerman. And Darylin had the very difficult task of informing her family that the girl in the creek was in fact their little girl. There's video footage of the family watching the news and finding out about all of this, finding out that Amber was in fact found in the creek. It's so surreal to watch the saddest moments of somebody's life. I'm not sure why this was being filmed. I'm assuming that the family was okay with it because they allowed the cameras in there. I'm pretty sure it was the same news crew that had filmed the documentary. And by this point, they had built a very close rapport with them. Donna was very close to the producer of the documentary and she was also very active in the search for Amber. So I'm assuming that they were fine with this, but it really is so surreal to watch. And there's a clip where Donna is watching Amber's body with a sheet over her being wheeled out on a gurney from the creek. I'm not sure at this point whether or not she knew it was Amber, but just Watching Donna watch that footage is so heartbreaking. I can't imagine how helpless she felt watching that on TV from your living room and there's nothing you can do about it. And I do wanna give you guys just a quick warning. This is pretty graphic. We are speaking about the death of a child. Amber's body was found naked with only a sock on her right foot and her entire body was bloody and bruised. Investigators found that Amber's throat had been slit, so much so that she was almost decapitated. And this was said to be her cause of death. The next morning, January 18th, Donna really wanted to see Amber for herself. She said that she wouldn't believe that that was her daughter until she saw her with her own eyes. But the medical examiner didn't allow visitors before the autopsy had been conducted. So the police department did what they could to get the autopsy expedited so Donna could see her. The autopsy revealed that Amber was kept alive two days after she was kidnapped. 
And it also concluded that Amber had been dead for two days when she was first found. Her cause of death was due to multiple stab wounds and blood loss. Now there was no evidence of a sexual assault, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. There were no defensive wounds on Amber's body or any signs of her being tortured. And investigators believed that Amber's body had been placed right where it was found in the creek. As I said, the creek was swollen with rain and it was very full. So they believed that her body didn't wash away or ended up there. They think that's exactly where she was placed by whoever did this to her. Police also believed that whoever put Amber there knew about this creek. I mean, you have to look at where it was. It was pretty remote. It was behind an apartment complex. You wouldn't have known about it unless you lived in or around the area. There was a broken gate at the apartment complex that would give somebody access to the creek behind the building. Police decided to obtain surveillance footage from the gate at the apartment complex, and they saw a video of a black truck, but couldn't identify a license plate because it was just too grainy and the quality wasn't great. The man who found Amber was a man named Stuart Kosher, and he was brought into the police station for questioning. And he told them that he took his dog for a walk after the storm had passed the night that he found Amber and his dog started barking when they got near the creek and it was there that he saw Amber's body. He immediately ran back to his apartment building and went to his neighbors to tell them and after passing a polygraph test Stuart Kosher was ruled out. Police questioned every resident and worker of the apartment complex and everybody said that they didn't see anything suspicious that night or in the days leading up to Amber being found. Now that's so frustrating. How are there no witnesses or anybody willing to come forward and say anything? On January 19th, Two days after Amber's body was found, Donna was allowed to go see her. And the medical examiner strongly advised against this because Amber's body was not in good condition. She had sustained some very brutal injuries, but Donna didn't care. She went to the funeral home Amber was at and she got to see her daughter one more time. She kissed her, held her hand, and talked to her. Unfortunately, she didn't get to hold her the way she wanted to because they wanted to preserve the condition of her body. Donna just recalls this as being a moment that she'll never forget because she finally got to see her daughter one last time and accept the fact that she was in fact gone. Amber's funeral was held on January 20th, 1996, three days after she was found. The funeral was held at the First United Methodist Church and about 2,500 people were in attendance. So many people were moved by Amber's tragic story and they really wanted to show up to pay their respects to her and her family. Amber's blue casket was adorned with beautiful flowers and inside her casket were teddy bears sent by the community as well as a few other meaningful items. There was also a balloon release done in her memory memory and they were all white and pink. Amber's little brother Ricky was five at the time and he says that he doesn't remember a whole lot about this time period but what he does remember is Amber's funeral and he said that he just wanted her to wake up. He didn't understand at the time why she couldn't just wake up but he was only five years old. Of course he didn't understand now, it's normal for detectives to attend the funeral of a murder victim in order to observe any unusual behavior that could be depicted by anybody that attends the funeral. They were watching from afar. They were watching up close. They wanted to see if they could find anything or spot anybody acting a little bit strange. The police were desperate to find out who did this to Amber. I mean, nobody could believe that a child was kidnapped in broad daylight and nobody saw anything that could help find this person. I mean, Jimmy Kevill was the only witness, but this was a really busy street. How did this 
man that lived so much farther away across the street see something and no one else did. The tips were coming in daily for Amber, but nothing panned out. Everything came to a dead end. On January 24th, four days after Amber's funeral, a woman came forward saying that she saw Amber get abducted. She said she saw the truck drive off with Amber pounding on the back window, begging for help. And she even gave some license plate numbers. She didn't know the whole license plate number, but she had a few of them that she said she remembered. So the task force immediately jumped at this lead because this was the most information that they had gotten since Amber had been taken. They worked with the local Ford company to find out who could have owned this vehicle based on the license plate numbers. And they were able to find a potential suspect that lived in Arlington, Texas. They went to the residence of the suspect and they searched his home and the man was very cooperative, but they didn't find anything connecting him to Amber's death. Law enforcement decided to go back to the witness who told them about this lead in the first place because they wanted to see if there was more information they could get out of her to possibly find another suspect. But as the woman retold the story, there were a lot of inconsistencies. Finally, she just admitted to making all of it up. She said she did this to give Donna and the rest of the family more hope and she wanted to keep Amber's case alive and in the media. Now, I really don't understand why people do this at all. Why do you think this is helpful to people? This is not real hope. What is the point of giving people false hope? And it probably makes it that much harder to move forward, getting a false lead. Not to mention, she was wasting law enforcement's time because the time that they spent following this lead, they could have been spending focused on other things that may have actually been real. She wasted their time, she wasted their resources, and this is just making things harder. So even though she said she was trying to help the family, for all we know, she could have just been trying to get attention. I really don't know, but either way, this is not helpful to the family at all. As time went on, police and Amber's family became very, very frustrated. They could not believe that her killer was still walking the streets and could possibly hurt someone else. Donna started to petition around town for people in the community to sign up and push for laws to protect children. School board and city council meetings were also held to establish new safety measures because parents were terrified around this time. People who lived in Arlington, Texas were scared that a little girl was taken in broad daylight and no one knows who did it. Well, somebody knows, but no one was coming forward with who did it. And that person's still just walking the streets. Everybody was still concerned for their children and what may happen to them if this continued to go on and there was nothing being done. So this was a very hard time for people and parents in Arlington, Texas. And Donna did what she could to make sure that other people's children felt safe as well, because unfortunately her daughter was taken advantage of. On March 11th of 1996, that same year, Donna graduated from medical school after taking a leave of absence to focus on finding justice for Amber. I am personally so proud of Donna for finishing school. Given everything that had been going on in her life, she had suffered a horrible, horrible tragedy, and yet she was still able to pull herself together and finish school. And she said that she really did this for Amber and Ricky. She wanted to be able to finish. She wanted to feel proud. I'm sure Amber's so proud of her mother for her to be able to find the courage and the strength to go on in the midst of losing one of her children is just absolutely admirable and inspirational in every way because personally, I don't know if I could have been able to do that. In October of 1996, 
A woman named Deanna Simone from Fort Worth, Texas, happened to be watching the news the night of Amber's disappearance, showing Amber's documentary footage. And she realized after hearing Amber's story that there were over two hours in between when Amber was taken and when the public found out about it. So recall that Amber was taken somewhere in between 3 and 3.30 p.m., but the public didn't know that she had been taken until the six o'clock news because that was when her family decided to go out and speak about it. So Deanna figured, okay, imagine if there had been less time in between Amber being taken and the public finding out about it. So she decided to call the local radio station and told them that she had an idea. And she came up with the idea, possibly sending out an alert to the public as soon as a child goes missing. And this alert should include a suspect description, a vehicle description, a victim description, as well as any other helpful information. The alert should be put out with this loud signal over the radio to get people's attention and allow the public to be on the lookout for the suspect vehicle immediately while they're in their cars. Instead of having to wait hours to have it broadcast on the news while everybody's tucked away in their homes. How about put this alert out immediately so that way people are out in their cars, they're looking and they can spot the vehicle. On October 30th, the Arlington Police Department announced the Amber Plan, and this plan was supposed to do just that. Local radio stations were very open to participating, and they really wanted to do what they could to shorten the gap between a child's disappearance and the public being notified about it, because maybe this could increase their chances of being found. In November of 1998, two years after Amber went missing, the Amber Plan was used for the first time when an eight-week-old baby from Arlington, Texas named Rayleigh Bradbury was kidnapped by her babysitter. Her mother, Patricia, was expecting her to be brought back to her home, but the babysitter never came by. And Patricia decided to call 911 and report baby Rayleigh missing. And the Arlington police decided to activate the Amber Alert for the first time. And I'm gonna play the audio from the first ever Amber Alert. This is an activation of the Amber Alert system at the request of the Arlington Police Department. Arlington police say a child, a two-month-old white female baby has been kidnapped. The baby's name is Rayleigh Ann Bradbury. Police believe the victim was abducted by her babysitter, Sandra Joyce Fallis, a white female, 42 years of age, 5'3", 135 pounds with black hair, brown eyes, and driving a turquoise 1993 Ford Ranger splash pickup truck. And within 30 minutes of the Amber Alert being broadcast over the radio, a man called 911 to report that the vehicle that was reported on the Amber Alert was right in front of him. He gave the exact vehicle description and license plate, the location, as well as even reporting to have seen baby Rayleigh sitting in the front seat. He was literally right behind the woman. He's like, I'm literally looking at the baby. Police immediately descended upon their location and arrested the babysitter. And baby Rayleigh was returned to her family unharmed. Her mother, Patricia, was so relieved to have gotten her baby back, known that she was okay and that she was safe because of the quick actions of the police department as well as this bystander. After the first Amber Alert was successful, police departments all over the country decided to implement this system in their towns. They began contacting the Arlington Police Department for advice on how to get it up and going. They just knew that this was revolutionary for the time. On April 30th, 2003, President George 
George Bush signed off on the Protect Act in Amber's honor. This was designed to strengthen law enforcement's ability to prevent, investigate, prosecute, and punish violent crimes committed against children. He even designated an Amber Alert coordinator in the Department of Justice, and he invited Donna and Ricky to a press conference in the Rose Garden where he signed off on this act. In October of 2021, the Arlington Police Department decided to see if they could test evidence they had collected in Amber's case because there's been a lot of new technology developed since 1996. And if they're able to test this evidence against new technology, then they could possibly bring Amber's killer to justice. That still has yet to happen, unfortunately. And it's upsetting that whoever did this is still out there roaming free and someone knows who did it. Someone has to know. They're just not coming forward. This person could have possibly done this to other children in their time of not being caught. Amber and her family deserve justice and closure just as much as anyone else. And I hope that they're living a horrible life full of very, very bad karma. Donna has since remarried and continues to be an advocate for the Amber Alert and child safety. And she does everything she can to advocate for children and prevent what happened to her daughter from happening to somebody else. She really channeled her pain into becoming a voice for other families who have gone through the same thing as her. Amber's brother Ricky has gone on to have children of his own. One of his daughter's names is Renee, which was Amber's middle name. Now she was actually born on the same day and in the same hour as Amber, which just goes to show she definitely has a guardian angel. Amber's father, Richard Hagerman, unfortunately passed away in 2007 and will never live to see his daughter get justice. I'm sure Amber's watching over her family, her nieces, her nephews, her brother, her mother, and just making sure they're safe and keeping a close eye on them. They definitely have a guardian angel. If you have any information regarding the kidnapping and murder of Amber Hagerman, I will leave the number of the Crime Stoppers of Tarrant County in the episode description for any information regarding the kidnapping and murder of Amber Hagerman. And you can call this number in order to report any information that you or anyone else may know. And I will make sure I leave that number in in the episode description. I really hate to end the episode here because there just are still no answers for who may have done this to Amber and it breaks my heart. But with that, we're gonna go ahead and unfortunately wrap up this episode. I will be back next week with another episode or two new episodes actually because I am gonna be uploading twice a week. Thank you so much for listening and I hope to see you in the water soon.